1: So, what's trending?
0: Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timmery on Relevant Radio. we most
2: my goodness, welcome to Trending. I must say I was very excited for today's opportunity to play Weird Al. Not very often you get a chance to do that. That is Amish paradise. A bit of a tribute to our guest today and a hint about the theme, which we will get to shortly, a remarkable conversion story that takes us from the hills of Amish country to the halls of Oxford University. Cannot wait to share this next hour with you and our next guest. It is Brooke Taylor again, in for Timory. Glad to be with you back again. And liturgically today, we observe the feast of St. Anthony of the Desert, one of the most rigorous ascetics in the history of the church. He was a hermit, founder of Christian monasticism. And his story ties into the life of our guest today, in a sense, to step out of the world in, status and means and to embrace a life of prayer and simplicity living off the land and also this fierce warfare in the spiritual realm battling the devil there's a story about saint anthony where living as a hermit essentially in this rock hewn cave that the devil would come to tempt him and often appear to show saint anthony what he could have done what his other life would have been if he had remained in the world and so this obviously was to frighten him was to cause him to doubt and we know that that is the unchanged tactic of the devil from the start the tempter and the great saints like padre pio and our lord himself that pattern and even in our own lives perhaps we recognize that spiritual combat that attacks the very purpose and the very plan for our lives so saint anthony responds in a way of such totality of obedience that he remains a beacon to us throughout the centuries. It was fasting, penance, staying at his post, not giving in to despair. And so it's pretty remarkable when you think he lived, tradition says, to be 106. And when you think of what today we would consider a pretty extreme lifestyle, it is amazing. And just another example of the beauty and the richness and the witness of the saints, how diverse they are and still speaks to us today. And that's what Pope Benedict says. He calls the saints God's true constellations, which light up the nights of this world serving as our guides, which is a pretty fantastic way to segue into our guest on today's program. So a little bit of St. Anthony of the Desert we see in his conversion story, but also I think you'll hear today hints of St. Paul, or perhaps more appropriately Saul of Tarsus before the conversion, and then St. Augustine. You'll maybe hear hints of Tolkien and Lewis, St. John Henry Newman, and perhaps even a little bit of Job all in the remarkable story of Dr. Chad Gerber, and he is with us for the hour. And just a quick introduction, he is a former Mennonite Presbyterian Anglican, and I think a few more other denominations in there which we'll hear about eventually converting to Catholicism. He is an award-winning professor of Catholic theology recognized twice over as Outstanding Educator of the Year at Walsh University. Dr. Gerber completed four degrees in theology and philosophy, including a doctorate from Oxford University. And he has published numerous academic essays and reviews, as well as a book, which we will talk about on the life of St. Augustine. Dr. Gerber and his wife Jennifer have seven children and live on a hobby farm among the Amish community of Northeast Ohio. Delighted to welcome him to the program today. Hello, Dr. Gerber.
1: Hello, Brooke. Thanks so much for having me. What an opening! Weird Al, <laughs> Saint Anthony, and a, a whole host of. We're in good company tonight, aren't we?
2: Yeah, your life. I mean, it just induces such a banquet of music <laughs> and yeah, stories. And and that's just the beginning. We're really going to weave through kind of an epic adventure today. And so I guess I want to start with that. We we set this the stage of of Amish country and and just to see this patchwork of god's providence this twitch upon a thread so to speak that metaphor that god is always in the midst of our wanderings and but the origin where we start is amish country but you are a mennonite so i just want to clarify as we begin this that as we look to your childhood you weren't riding in the black buggy you're a mennonite which is an amish but there is a difference so can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and that distinction between the two
1: Sure, absolutely. So I was raised in what's probably, uh, a quick Google search might confirm this, but it was probably the largest Amish and Mennonite community in the world in Northeast Ohio. Um, and so the Mennonites and the Amish are both, both belong to a movement from the Reformation called the Anabaptist movement. And, and Anabaptist mm-hmm. means to, to re-baptize. Because these Christians, so radical at the time, were taking those who were baptized as infants, whether in the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the Reformed Churches, and they were rebaptizing them because they believed in believer's baptism, right? That baptism represents something that's already taken place in your soul through the work of the Holy Spirit, independent of any sacrament. So it's a merely a symbol to the community after this has already taken place. And so they were labeled the Anabaptists or Rebaptizers by those who were persecuting them. And so they both belong to that broad movement. And historically, they're actually very, very similar, almost indistinguishable, except for a few things like the way they approach the concept of shunning those who left the church or who were in habitual sin. But today, if many of your listeners, I'm sure, know this from the little that they maybe even know about the Amish and Mennonites, is that the Amish on sort of a spectrum, let's call it a spectrum of, like, nonconformity to the world. The Amish are probably, on are, like, on the far right, right? The most, the least right. conformed to the world, right? So they haven't adopted really any modern conveniences, whether it's automobiles, electricity, even things like, many of them like zippers on their clothing, right? And And then on the left, you would have, more progressive, you would have the Mennonites, who are a little more open to these, these many conveniences that we've you know we've had over the last uh, hundred plus years or so, and then there's a big blurry middle actually where you have some Mennonites who still actually use horse and buggy, the old order of Mennonites, and you have more progressive Amish, believe it or not, who actually drive automobiles, not many but some and okay. so I grew up in that this world where the principle at bottom behind it all though was the idea of nonconformity of being a distinct people um, of being clearly other than society, and then practicing other kind of radical principles like forgiveness, non-retaliation, sharing of possessions, a radical simplicity of life, and so forth. So that was kind of like the ethos, the culture I grew up in.
2: And you had mentioned that it is, or perhaps one of the largest communities, Amish communities, and that's significant because really that was your whole world. You had very little to no exposure whatsoever to different faith traditions, especially Catholicism, right? There wasn't a church nearby or any Catholic um, representation near you?
1: No, absolutely none. I mean, there was maybe one or two students in my school growing up were Catholic, but I didn't really know that and there wasn't anything that distinguished them necessarily in their practices or their dress or or anything. So my exposure to Catholicism really was almost zero as a child. And then maybe as I got older and, you know, I had more access to television and movies, I, you know, I picked up some things about Catholics, which wasn't always really flattering, In in movies, whether it's the Godfather movies or, you know, watching (laughs) sports where where football, you know, football is like a religion within Catholicism, right? So Notre Dame football. um, But that was it. I mean, I was really quite naive growing up because everyone was a part of the Anabaptist tradition around me.
2: Well, and I kind of liken your story, in a sense, to The Hobbit, and maybe it's because of where we'll end up at Oxford and you being there and Tolkien and that connection, but I think of Bilbo because he really had no reason to leave the Shire, and in fact, too much adventure, too much knowledge was frowned upon among the Hobbits, and he too lived a kind of agrarian existence, just simplicity, frugality, service, and generally it seems like members in those communities don't often veer past the border of their lands so how did that happen for you because it seems like you had everything there and generationally everyone stayed
1: yeah and actually most of my siblings and relatives have stayed around Um, so why I'm a hobbit now why did I leave the Shire Um, (laughs) this is funny because I'm I'm a little bit of St. Anthony a little bit of of Hobbits and I I love all that. I love middle earth I love the Hobbits this is great and I've come well I'm sure we'll get here eventually but I've come full circle I've returned to the Shire now live with my family where, where I grew up. Um, I suppose that the, the major, the moment in which I really began to kind of separate myself from the Mennonites was when I went to college, and I chose, unlike most of my peers, to go to a school that was not Mennonite. Um, there are a handful of Mennonite colleges in the Midwest and East Coast that, that most uh, young men and women around here attend. And I chose instead to go to um, a kind of almost a non-denominational Protestant school, a little closer to home, along with my, my wife, well, my girlfriend at the time. And that's where I was really first exposed to the wide world of Protestantism and a little bit more to Catholicism as well.
2: So you go there and then I know in your resume or in your bio, you eventually accumulate four degrees. So was your path at this point to be as well educated as you could be, to be a scholar, to be a pastor? What was the end goal?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question because we might need to back up just a little bit. Um, And this is where my conversion story is a little more St. Augustine. Well, there's actually a number of ways it's like St. Augustine, but this, this first sort of turning towards the Lord is, is definitely St. Augustine, as opposed to St. Anthony, who was such a good young child, as St. Athanasius' bio tells us, right? He only goes from good to better. Where my childhood, I was not a particularly pious young man in the Mennonite Church. I, I was pretty apathetic to my faith, and so my parents really had to drag me to everything. And sometimes they failed. I got pretty good at hiding in our home, where they sometimes would actually leave me <laughs> at home, because they, they couldn't find me in time for whatever church <laughs> event they were going to. And so at the age of 15, they, they managed to get me to an event where a young man was preaching the gospel, really powerful uh, sermon he was delivering on on Christ's passion. And the Lord just reached into my heart and did an amazing work of grace, just poured out His love into my heart, and I came to faith that day. And along with that conversion experience was a very clear call to ministry, that I was to spend the rest of my life doing what that young man had just done for me, to tell others about Jesus Christ. And a few weeks later, I met a girl and fell madly in love. She was new to our school, and I asked her if I could walk her home from school and was convinced after walking her home and talking to her for a total of 15 to 20 minutes that I was supposed to marry her. And we—what <laughs> well, you were getting lots my- of. This is like well, a Pentecost well, in your life here. These—I'll tell you what. Uh, this is thirty-some years ago, and I still feel like these are like the anchor points of my life. Those those immovable wow. moments that that have never changed. I've never once doubted in my call to ministry. My wife and I dated all through high school, went to college together, and now we're coming full circle to the college experience. Uh, went to college together to study theology, philosophy, prepare for a min- life of ministry together, because it turns out, as I got to know her, that she had also recently gone had a pretty profound conversion experience, and she wanted nothing more than to spend her life doing ministry or to be a pastor's wife, but to be involved in ministry one way or another. So we went to college together to prepare for that, eventually with a view towards seminary, and, and who know, knows what after that. But um, So that's sort of what was driving all of this, was... Was to be properly trained to be as trained as possible to proclaim the gospel to make disciples.
2: And and in your bio again, we hear that you have different faith traditions. We of course starting at Mennonite, which we talked about, and then there is Presbyterian. I think in there, I think at one point you begin to embrace Calvinism, which w- is where things get interesting. And we have a few minutes before the break, and I want to maybe start there because there is a definite curveball. And now not only is the Catholic tradition on your radar screen, but it's a target in your bullseye because you then, yes. it sounds like as you continue your education, become very
1: anti-Catholic. I do. So I go to university, and so the Mennonite tradition is kind of lowbrow, agrarian, not a not a huge value on the life of the mind, certainly not in the matters of faith. We have good schools and, and so forth, but when it comes to the faith, it's, it's pretty simplistic about what it means to love and know God. And so in college, I really fell in love with theology. And so I started to gravitate towards, uh, you know, Martin Luther and John Calvin and the, more, the magisterial reformers, the original reformers, uh, you know, over, uh, kind of which the Mennonites reacted against in their kind of radical reformation they started. So I kind of went backwards in time to the original reformers and really embraced what it was to be Protestant, which is to say not Catholic because I didn't have any anti-Catholic biases growing up, I didn't really know anything. Uh, and so it was during the, my college years that I came to understand that I was a Protestant, identified during those years as a Calvinist, and I did became become deeply uh, anti-Catholic during those years and made it my mission to try to convert every Catholic on campus, and even to get the Newman Club at my university kicked off campus as I, if I could.
2: Uh, what so just did happy- you feel they were... Um, yeah. they were the, the Antichrist, the the papists, just all
1: that, I guess, I, we hear. Sure. For me, it, was, it really boiled down to this, that they had, I don't want to say lost the gospel, because they'd more or less buried it, this is what I believed at the time, buried it under all this mountain of man-made traditions, and all these externals, and these rituals, and all of these things that I saw at the time that got in the way of a deeply personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so they thought they were, you know, disciples of Jesus because they went to confession or they sort of lived how they wanted during the week, but as long as they got up on Sunday and received communion, they were fine. And so I wanted to, to liberate them from this system of works and, and to-do lists and rituals and so forth so they could simply know and love Jesus. And so I was passing out tracts. I was evangelizing in the dorms. I was going head-to-head head with the, the priest on campus who ran Newman, uh, and really causing, causing quite a stir around campus. I mean, I was, I was just so fired up about all of these things, having just fallen in love with theology and then sort of found the, the Protestant Reformers and then realized that, oh my goodness, there's a billion Catholics out there who, who have, have this sort of false gospel, you know? And so I was really laser-focused on that during my college years.
2: And the plot thickens. Uh, we have to take a break. Dr. Chad Gerber is with us, but I want to pick it up right there when we come back after the break. We've been talking about his remarkable conversion story from the hills of Amish country to the halls of Oxford University. The number is one 914 9149 Call us to join the conversation. Do you have a question for Dr. Gerber? Perhaps a story to add, a, a comment to share about a pivotal moment in your faith? Our studio line is open. My name is Brooke Taylor. In for Timory, you're listening to Trending here on Relevant Radio right back after the break. Stay with us. This February 24th, our show sponsor Colby Academy is hosting a virtual college fair where high school students can hear from top Catholic colleges and universities from around the world. Register at relevantradio.com slash Colby.
0: You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149.
2: St. John Henry Cardinal Newman observed that turning to the Roman Catholic Church means on the one hand, to rediscover all the dispersed truths and to enter into the fullness of truth. But on the other hand, it also means leaving behind error and heresy. He called it discovering the great symphony of truth isolated strains of which are to be found in many religious denominations and certainly that has been lived out in my guest this hour we are with dr chad germer former mennonite presbyterian anglican i think even a little southern baptist in there for a stint as well before eventually being led to the catholic church across the tiber home to rome where he and his wife became converts, Catholic, and today he's a theologian and Augustine scholar, as well as a farmer. My name is Brooke Taylor in Fort Timory, while she's on maternity leave. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Trending, and Chad is with us for the hour. Our studio line is open, so feel free to connect one is the number to reach us. And Dr. Gerber, Gerber, before the break, I think we were right at your Saul of Tarsus phase (laughs) where you you were persecuting the church. You were convinced that it was wrong and that not only did you have a duty to convert people away from being Catholic at one point, to even try to kick the Newman Club off the campus. So something changed. Now, was this while you were at Duke, at the Duke Divinity School there?
1: So my, my undergraduate was Ashland University, okay, not far from where, where I currently live. And my wife and I, we married halfway through college and we then set off to seminary. And I ended up doing two different seminary degrees, one at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago And then a second at Duke University, both Protestant schools. And it was during these years that I began to kind of open up, as it were, to maybe calm down is is the (laughs) right way to think of it. Our Lord really humbled me during those years, just being exposed to so many other Christian traditions, Mm -hmm. both Protestant, but also I came to know some Orthodox and Catholics during these years. It was just a really humbling time, also because I was around other really intellectual heavyweights, professors and students, and I came to recognize I don't have all the truth. And there's a lot of other perspectives out there. So it was a very humbling time, and also a time in which I was beginning to recognize the—just how diverse the Protestant world was. I was needing to think about ordination, if I was to be ordained. And I knew I wasn't Mennonite anymore. I had gone through that radical Calvinist phase. But at this point in my life, I really wasn't sure what I was. So I was beginning to submit, maybe not even consciously, submit to criticism. Protestantism itself, which by its very nature just engenders further division, because at mm-hmm. its core is sectarianism. It, it just, it, it's sort of a, a slippery slope, an endless snowball effect. And right. so I was beginning to wonder, you know, if maybe there's something wrong with the whole system within which I was working at that time. And the, the major thing that happened during my seminary degrees is we had to translate a lot of the New Testament. I'd learned Greek as an undergraduate and had begun translating portions of the New Testament, but really only the ones I wanted to read, which sort of reinforced my Calvinism. And so during my two seminary degrees, I was forced to, to really spend time with other passages that I had never really noticed in the New Testament. And those passages, let's say like John chapter 6 and First Corinthians mm-hmm. Chapters 10 and 11 with regard to the Eucharist look started to look very Catholic to me the more time <laughs> I spent with those. And other things, you know, with regard to baptism, with regard to the authority of the apostles, uh, Mary, other sorts of things were coming up in the text because I was really being forced to, to really sit at the feet of the text and let them speak to me as I was working word by word through them in the Greek. And so when I left seminary to go on to doctoral work, I was at a place where, and I wasn't saying this to anyone but my wife, uh, it would have been scandalous to most friends and family, I was beginning <laughs> to wonder if, in fact, Catholics weren't quite as crazy as I thought.
2: Well, I remember hearing a story, and I I actually don't know if if you remember this or if you know this, because it was when I was uh, talking to your wife, Jen, where she had said that you were in a Bible study at one point where you were actually debating if Mother Teresa was in heaven. That must have been after she had died, and that is how far— that far off the path, I suppose, you know, that things were at that point. So it really is remarkable to see, and of course, as you're saying, it makes sense, the humility of being exposed to these intellectual giants, the the brilliant radiance of truth in scripture, and your own humility as well. And then at that point, had you had exposure to Catholic writing?
1: I was beginning to be exposed to Catholic writing. I was beginning to read, Pre-Reformation theology, the early church, medieval church. I was reading Augustine and Aquinas during these years. Uh, I was introduced to Cardinal Ratzinger's theology, began re- reading his works, as well as others like von Balthazar and Karl Rahner and more modern thinkers. So yes, I was definitely... My professors, they were the ones pushing me to read this stuff. I probably would have stayed in my lane and what I knew well, but they were really pushing me to think outside the box, to go deeper into history, to expand my purview, so maybe I wasn't comfortable with it right away, but these writings just really began to enrich my life. And when I made the decision to go do doctoral work, uh, we had an opportunity to stay here in the states. A couple schools that I was accepted to, but we ended up choosing to go over to England to Oxford, as as kind of a way to get get away from home, where I could a place where I could really think clearly and out loud, and and not you know, kind of a fresh start maybe is what I'm what I'm sort of getting at. And in Oxford, uh, we specifically chose, we looked at Cambridge and Oxford, um, Oxford because all the great Christian traditions are so well represented there. Orthodoxy is alive and thriving there. The Catholic Church is thriving there with all the major religious orders having houses and colleges within Oxford. Uh, all, most of the major Protestant denominations have colleges as well. So we largely went there, uh, of course, to get my doctorate, but to really pound out this question of who are we exactly? We know we're disciples of Jesus, but where do we fit in? What is the church? And so I chose as my field of study specifically the early church when we got there, w- with the a kind of view to to seeing if the early church fathers, those who were closest to the apostles who wrote the New Testament, if they corroborated or perhaps refuted what I thought I was seeing in the New Testament, those kind of Catholicy things I was finding regarding eucharist and baptism and so forth in the new testament
2: as you just said that i am picturing this collective chuckle of our theologians and priests and religious listening that <laughs> they are nodding and saying yes i see where this is going when you talk about going to oxford and then to study the early church i mean that's it right there and had you yeah. known then about the oxford movement did you know about
1: john henry uh, newman no no, I, I didn't know him. I knew he was the guy that the Newman Club was named after and that he was a convert, <laughs> which I, of course, at that time in my college years, couldn't get in my mind around that someone would choose to become Catholic. <laughs> but when I showed up at Oxford, all I knew is that he was he had been at Oxford. I wasn't familiar with the movement. Uh, and, and things start to get really interesting here in my time at Oxford because my life and his life start to almost like coalesce. Like I really, I, I start to realize that I am sort of walking in his footsteps because he as an early teen had a radical conversion to kind of evangelical protestantism like i did in my early teens he then went to university at oxford and became a calvinist and an anti-catholic Oh wow. and while he wasn't he wasn't as nasty as i was brooke he certainly wasn't <laughs> nice if you read his letters right right he then eventually returns to Oxford as a minister in the Anglican Communion, which I became while I was at Oxford. I was not a minister, but my family belonged to an Anglican church. He returns to Oxford. He's a minister in the Anglican church, and he's preaching and teaching there at the University Church, and begins to really submit to criticism, Protestantism itself, the Anglican church. And he withdraws to his this little home he had on the outskirts of Oxford called Littlemore, Mm-hmm. He had this home, and he had taken these stables and turned them into guest houses, and he built a little chapel there. And he sort of holds up there and, and begins to rigorously study the early church with this question of, you know, whether or not it is Protestant or Catholic, whether or not it supports Anglicanism or Catholicism. And he ends up uh, being received into the Catholic Church right there at Littlemore as he's diving into the Church Fathers. And as I'm at Oxford, I'm writing my doctoral dissertation on the doctrine of the Trinity, which is something Protestants and Catholics largely agree about, but in my spare time I am doing what Newman was doing. I'm rigorously reading the Church Fathers from the very earliest ones, the first and second century up through the fourth and fifth centuries as much as I can in the Greek and Latin, and this is taking up so much time I realize I need to get away, I need a retreat where I can just hole up, a place I can hole up and just read the Church Fathers. And a Jesuit friend of mine uh, Father David McConey, some of your listeners might recognize, uh, a prolific author speaker. Uh, Father David, who is also a, a doctoral student at Oxford, says, "Hey, there's this little retreat place out on the edge of town called Littlemore. Why don't you start <laughs> going out there? The nuns, there's these nuns from Germany who live there, and they they kind of run it as a retreat center and a shrine to Blessed Newman. He would have been at the time, now a Saint, of course." Mm-hmm. Um, And so I began going out there on the weekends with a suitcase full of patristic writings, early church writings, and doing exactly what Newman did. I I slept in one of those little guest rooms. I worshipped in his chapel. I studied in his library. And the sisters even let me into his very own private room so that I could kneel and pray at his pray his kneeler, right beside his bed. Mm. And it was during those would have been the final weekend, I think I did this maybe three times, the final weekend, when I had finally gotten through the, the stack of books, when the, the, a, another light you know, bulb went off in my mind, or another movement of grace, profound movement of grace, where I realized, without a shadow of a doubt, that the early church is, in fact, the Catholic Church. In seminal form, in seed form, it's not fully developed which is another principle that Newman articulates very clearly, the idea of the development of doctrine, how things organically grow right. uh, and become more fully what they are throughout church history. But clearly in seed form, the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, baptism as a regenerative ritual, a, a truly efficacious sacrament, uh, the apostles having a unique authority endowed by them by Jesus Christ to teach and speak in his name and administer grace you know, through reconciliation and so forth. It, it, it was everywhere in the Church Fathers. It wasn't just this or that Church Father. It was all of them speaking with one voice. And it, that's so powerful when you think about it, because if they're all saying this, how and, and they're all, of course, so close to the, those who wrote the New Testament, those who knew Jesus, the original apostles, how could they possibly be wrong?
2: Well, I mean, I'm, of course, just echoing the the praise of agreement here, but there's so much in your description that I think we're right there with you. We're in that home and I'm I'm trying to hold it together and actually not weep because of the beauty of what you're describing, this earnest, sincere seeking. And in the last place, I imagine you expected. So I'm just wondering for you, was it just a complete and absolute assurance and confirmation from the Holy Spirit? Was there one thing that it was like, okay, whether it's the Eucharist or whether it was Our Lady, that once you were able to reconcile that, or like you're saying with the Apostolic Fathers, the the chronology and Apostolic Succession, what was that? And then also, how did your wife respond? Was she in lockstep? That's another really astonishing part of your story is how similar, even though uh Ostensibly, she's you know raising the children and, and supporting you. You're in school. I know she went to school for a portion of that as well. Yet, you didn't grow apart. That how the Lord really knitted you together through this intellectual and spiritual pursuit.
1: Yeah, our, our journey, step by step, really was Brooke in lockstep. Uh, we're blessed with a wonderful marriage. I'm blessed with a wife who loves theology as much as I do. And so she's reading just about everything I'm reading. She's raising some of her young children, so she's a little more limited in time. But when I came home with something that was really profound, like, let's say, Ignatius of Antioch's letters uh, from, from around the turn of the first century, which are so thoroughly Catholic, I would give these to her and say, "Hun, th- this, this bishop, who, who knew some of the original apostles, is clearly teaching that the Eucharist is the, the risen body and blood of our Lord." and she would read them to. And as we entered more into Catholic life, began to befriend Catholics and, and go to Mass and so forth, she, we we were com- with one mind throughout the entire process, prayerfully together. And, and that's perhaps the biggest blessing of the whole journey, is is the way that it facilitated the sacrament of marriage, the way it really drew us closer to one another and to the Lord Jesus.
2: What was the first time like when you went to a Catholic Holy Mass and having— lived in Oxford, I just imagine. It must have been very grand and very reverent. But anything that stood out to you, because it was such a different experience than kind of the low Protestant service that you probably grew up in with the Mennonite tradition.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was so otherworldly for me. The very first one that I attended was in my own home. When, when my Jesuit friend, Father, Father McConey was over visiting one day, and I just was getting to know him, it was probably even a little suspicious of him at that point as a Catholic priest. <laughs> and he starts calling up some friends, which was this sort of like Oxford group of converts, those who were in the process or those who had already been received into the church, and tells them to come over. And as, when they arrive, I find out we're having mass in my home. And and so that was actually a nice transition for me because of the, the hominess of the mass, so to speak. It was comfortable. I was with someone I trusted. I kind of just sat back and watched because I didn't really know what was happening. But then we began as I drew closer to the church and was even at Littlemore, I would often go to mass there at Littlemore with the sisters. They had a local priest come in. Um, and I'll tell you what, like I, the, the moment that might have been the most profound in the journey wasn't so much the study and the realization in my mind that the church, the early church was the Catholic church. It was the last mass that I attended at Littlemore in my final retreat, I went to mass and I usually just sat in the back and watched. But for this mass, I went up to be blessed. And apparently this, the procedure of, you know, crossing your arms and being blessed with something unfamiliar to the priest as it is in certain regions and parts of the world and so I crossed my arms to be blessed, and he attempted to place our Lord's body in my mouth. Mm-hmm. And as he sat there just holding it in front of my lips, now with this newfound knowledge that I had, and this, this deep inner longing that I'd actually had for many years, that there must be something more to the faith, that there must be a deeper intimacy with our Lord than, than just sort of a Bible and a free-for-all kind of prayer life. There must be more. As he placed our Lord right there in front of my lips. I just began to weep because I couldn't receive him. I went back to my pew and and just wow. shook w- with with tears. And so I think really, in some sense, that's the moment I really received the grace of full conversion. To, because I didn't just know it intellectually, I desired it with my whole being.
2: And my it w- wasn't and long after.
1: That. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah.
2: And to think of the Anima Christi, you know, that prayer and just Uh, the the origin, everything. That is so powerful. I think that's a great pause point just to sit and reflect on that. Dr. Chad Gerber is our guest, former Mennonite turned professor of theology with four degrees, including a doctorate from Oxford University. Within his story, we see the lives uh, mirrored of, of other saints like Paul, who was once a persecutor of the faith, Tolkien. We talked about John Henry Newman and so many others. And really really enjoying his story even now a bit of job and we'll get into that in our next segment as we reflect on loss and the paschal mystery and the power of the mass my name is brooke taylor in for timory who is on maternity leave glad to be with you you're listening to trending we will be right back here on relevant radio
0: The Catholic Order of Foresters, the sponsor of our studio line, is hiring today. Several positions are available throughout the U.S. Visit relevantradio.com/foresters to learn more about how you can find your vocation with COF. An Illinois Life Insurance Society, not licensed in all states. Time passed, and the. Uh... And the, the hobbits grew into this world. Yes. Matter of fact, what really happened was that the uh, cause, having already constructed the world, they became drawn into it.
2: Welcome back. To trending. You're listening there to the voice of J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, back when that interview was recorded, the clarity <laughs> wasn't as good necessarily as we have today. But here, if you could hear him, he's describing the journey of Bilbo Baggins, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings series in general. And in case you missed it, he said, having already constructed the world, they became drawn into it. And in a sense, we can say that about my guest. He began as a Mennonite, where going off, going out into the world was not something always Done and in doing so, kind of like Bilbo leaving the Shire, the adventure weaved our guest and his wife and their family through many lands, many tribes. I guess you could say encountering different faith traditions, denominations, four degrees, uh, studying theology and philosophy, and then ending up at Oxford, which is in our last segment where we left off, and finally coming home to Rome and crossing the Tiber into the Catholic Church. Dr. Chad Gerber, with us. And Chad, at this point then, it sounds like there's just one thing left, and that is to officially become Catholic.
1: That's right. And things kind of slowed down at that point. I was wrapping up my doctorate, and we moved back to the States. And we decided to move back and live on a farm that we rented from some family members for a number of years while I looked for a teaching post. And I felt this need— to kind of work out the final details uh, among the people who had brought me to faith. My people, my family, my church home. Mm -hmm. And so we went to both Mass and to the Mennonite church that I grew up in and shared with everyone who would listen what was going on in our lives, these new convictions that were forming about the Catholic Church. And the one thing that's so great about Mennonites is they have this incredible um, sense of curiosity and openness they're not like the Calvinists or the Southern Baptists when it comes to Catholics. They actually have a, a real uh, kind of spirit of humility and openness to learn from Catholics, even though, of course, they disagree on many things. And so I was actually even able to, to preach a series of, of sermons in the church I grew up in. I was invited to give a series of Lenten homilies in which I actually explained to my home church the, the ways that my views had changed. And while, of course, they disagreed, they were also very supportive. And so this really beautiful way that when we finally entered the church in 2008, uh, Father McConey himself, we flew him in and he received us at St. Paul's in North Canton, Ohio. Um, Mm -hmm. We did so almost with the blessing, you know, as much as they could offer a blessing, you know, for us to to leave and, and as we saw it, return to the church.
2: That is beautiful. And still today, I know your relationship with your parents is very close. And in the community, you're right embedded there, the Catholic All Saints Farm, which is the title of of your (laughs) land. And, you know, really, your, your apostolate is right there in the hills of Amish country.
1: It is, it is. We bought some land just down the road from where I grew up. And we developed a little hobby farm and a place of hospitality and retreat, big All Saints uh, farm sign hanging out front. And, you know, other we, we pretty much blend in. We have a white house and a red barn and black vehicles, which are very common. If you didn't know this, among the Mennonites, drive black cars as a sign of simplicity. Right. And so we look just about like everyone else until you walk into our home and you see the icons and statuary every, <laughs> everywhere. That's <laughs> fun to see the people's eyes grow large when my Amish neighbors come over to use the phone or something. What is going on in this place? <laughs> well, uh, I. Go ahead. I say it's, just, it's a wonderful place, though, to to raise a family. Of course, m- my neighbors, you know, and, and family and friends that are in this area, general area, don't share a Catholic belief. Um, but in some ways, that's actually good for our Catholic faith. I mean, we are the local representatives of the Catholic faith here. Mm. Uh, but it's also really good for us because of. The things we do share in common with the Anabaptist traditions, I mean, the, all the good things in those traditions, as you, I think, noted in your quote from St. John Henry Newman, those are really ours, right? right. Um, right. We're not lacking them. They've taken them in, in their departure from the church. They've taken some of our treasures, and, and some of those treasures are these ideas of simplicity and frugality, uh, forgiveness, sharing possessions, all these things I mentioned earlier. Those, those are ours, and they do them so well. Um, it's, it's, so it's been a really wonderful place to raise my my family, uh, and, and as we try to practice our own forms of detachment and asceticism and renunciation, these sorts of things, to be surrounded by people who are living out those things in a really radical way has been really good for our faith.
2: I want to revisit that quote because I think it is really good, and in this part of your story looking back, I think it is good to emphasize it's—John— Henry Newman, Saint, observing, turning to the Roman Catholic Church means, on the one hand, to rediscover all dispersed truths and to enter into the fullness of truth. But on the other hand, it also means leaving behind error and heresy. He called it discovering a great symphony of truth, isolated strains of which are to be found in many religious denominations. And I'm looking at the time, and I don't want to rush this, but I think it's it's of extreme importance to touch on because of how your life has been oriented and formed really from um, a certain point forward every single day since. And that is a bit of the share of the passion the passion, the Calvary of Christ that you have experienced in your family, in the sudden loss of your daughter, your daughter, Evie, Evelyn, at the age of 11. And I know that at great cost, um, it's a difficult thing to relive and retell. But I I guess specifically what I'd like to ask is, becoming Catholic in the way that we understand the Paschal mystery, even the richness of the Mass at the foot of the cross and the, the Resurrection walking through the loss and the grief, the funeral mass of your daughter, and then the subsequent years, has becoming Catholic helped you in that process in terms of the graces from the sacraments and, and, and maybe something that you might be able to offer that you've kind of latched onto as consolation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh... On some levels, I think the, the Anabaptist background was helpful, in, insofar as the, the broad themes we've been talking about with regard to detachment and renunciation and so forth are, are part and parcel of suffering, right? Mm, because yeah. aesthetical practices are really what? They're, they're self-imposed suffering. We often use the, the distinguish between passive and active suffering or passive and active purgation. And, and the, the, those lifestyles that they choose to freely enter into uh, they're really imposing on themselves an active form of purgation, choosing to suffer to to deepen and expand their their love for the Lord Jesus, right, and to enter into His own suffering. And so that tradition that I grew up with, and, and the ways that it's even then amplified in Catholicism, right, with our uh, religious orders and our own ascetical practices, uh, is something that was is really important. Was really important for both my wife and I in preparing us to embrace what we might call passive suffering or passive purgation, when, when we're given things rather than choosing them, we're, we're given them and we must ex- receive them as gift from our Lord, as in something as horrific as, as losing a child. And so my, my daughter's passing, which is by far the most you know, painful thing I can imagine, losing my, my little girl. It is something our Lord really prepared us for by letting us see the way that suffering is... Let me see if I can put this as succinctly as possible. Suffering is uh, intrinsic to charity. It's, 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 an, it's a core feature of what it is to love God, a willingness to suffer. And so when we lost Evie, we leaned in and we, we looked to the examples of the, of the saints, the martyrs throughout history... We look to our Lord and his own passion. Uh, We went to the foot of the cross. We went to mass as much as possible. We just, we entered into it. And I think that's something that I really, uh, that's something I really value Catholicism for is the the way that it sees suffering as gift and doesn't run from it, but but, um, allows it to do its best to us, right, if we allow it. And, and also so,
2: that just i was going to say the the way that we turn our eyes towards heaven and that ultimate reunion and the church mm-hmm. triumphant and again going back to that detachment like you said that um this orients us toward our true home
1: absolutely absolutely and yeah it's it's um it's by nature uh, a painful and horrible thing. But also, there is this sense in which it's beautiful. And I think of a line from Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, you'd mentioned the twitch upon a thread earlier, which comes from that book. Um, I think when one of the characters talks about kind of this magical sadness that they were experiencing. And I often think about that as, as I sit and grieve that there is something kind of magical, sacramental, it is a, is a mode and a means of God's presence in my life to, to grieve for my daughter and to accept it as a, as a mode of life itself, that I'm a grieving father. I will always be a grieving father because grief, grief is like the existential testimony to the worth of my daughter, and she will always have worth. I will always be without my beloved. And so I've, I'm at peace. My wife is at peace with the fact that we'll live our lives as grieving parents, and allow our Lord to accompany us in that pain and, and keep drawing us ever closer to Him.
2: That's beautiful. I, I remember reading, I believe it was an Eastern mystic, and talking about bright sadness. And when we are called to drink from the chalice, and we all will be, that it is not Pilate, it is not our enemy. Who hands us the chalice? It is our good father, and to mm. like our Lord, you know, receive and accept that as he did in the garden in Gethsemane. And um, Thy will be done. And the witness of your life, the testimony, the commitment to truth. And we didn't even get to Augustine, really, who is your your best mm-hmm. buddy. And we're almost out of time, so I hope maybe we can bring you back. But I think to maybe just a takeaway that you might offer in the last few minutes of is there in all that you've studied? I mean, you have studied the most brilliant minds in history, the greatest saints of the church, and obviously scripture. You talked about translating Greek and and Hebrew, being a Bible scholar. Is there a verse or a prayer or quote that's been most emblematic to your journey, your conversion, and even where you are now with with grief and healing that you might leave us with?
1: There's There's a prayer that I do pray every day, and many verses and prayers come to mind, Brooke, but... Padre Pio is a good friend of mine, too, and and my children love him dearly, and uh, every morning as I think about living the day as a grieving father, there's a prayer that that is somewhere in one of his letters. that goes something like this, Oh my Jesus, give me your strength when my weak nature rebels against the distress and suffering of this life of exile, and enable me to accept everything with serenity and peace. And... That just came to mind among many possible other prayers as, as something that really encapsulates uh, our lives, I think, as, as grieving parents, uh, but also just thinking more broadly about our life as, as a growth in charity. Charity by its very nature requires us to detach from this world, to let go of things, to hold things loosely, to be willing to have them taken from us when our Lord deems that it's time for us to have things taken from us. And so Padre Pio's spirituality in general and that, that prayer specifically have been a, a source of great solace for us uh, since the loss of our daughter.
2: He is. A friend. When you said a friend, I have to smile because how many of us feel yeah. that way in this this beautiful body of Christ, in this family of believers? Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. I just humbly ask our listeners to to remember your family, the Gerber family, in their prayers. I know today's Tuesday. We're getting ready for the family rosary across America and all of the so powerful, profound prayer intentions, but also enfolding your family in the Sorrowful Mysteries as well, your wife, Jen, your children, and the work the Lord has entrusted to you. Thank you so much again for your time, your story, and your your ongoing fiat, your dedication to our Lord and Our Lady in the Church.
1: Thank you, Brooke. God bless.
2: Thank you. St. Anthony, pray for us. St. Augustine, all the saints, we uh, are so grateful for the witness and say pray for us. Thank you for joining me for the program today. I will be back with you on Friday. We are getting ready for the March for Life and so many prayers, so much preparation. And on Friday's show, Layla Miller is going to rejoin me and have a conversation about navigating some of the difficult moral challenges with our children and more. We'll have a wonderful pro-life doctor on with us as well. My name is Brooke Taylor in for Timmery. Please keep her in your prayers as well with new baby girl and big sister and husband. God bless you. The Family Rosary Across America is next. Thank you to producer Jim Traper. God bless you.